Uh, good morning, it's good to see you. Happy fall back. How many in here love fall back? Very few. All right, I just changed my sermon. No, I'm kidding. I love fallback. Uh, I was probably the only person in the room that was sad when the, they passed the bill. They're going to switch that around. Uh, I love Christmas, uh, which right now, in case you didn't know, this is time to start celebrating that. Um, my wife decorated our house yesterday. Uh, and so, and she's great at that. So it's like we get about 50, 65 days or however long, yeah, 55 days of it. Uh, and then it's the saddest day of the year, December 26th. Um, and so, but the reality is like, it, it, I love this time of year. I, I love fall back. I love like when it gets dark early and the Christmas lights are on and all of that type of stuff. It's just, it's, it's a great time of year. So, and also I love the fact that it, I feel like it just gave me an extra hour to preach. So I hope you packed a lunch uh, because I'm going to, no, I'm kidding. Um, but we're here today. We're closing our series Counter Kingdom where we've been really for the last eight weeks counting today. And this idea of counter kingdom and what it means for Jesus to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and that when he did that, he was launching his counter kingdom, a kingdom that's counterintuitive to us, that's countercultural in so many ways. He was bringing that to earth in opposition of the kingdom of this world. And, and I would say like as we get here to the end that it has been rather uh, both encouraging and challenging this series has been. I mean, it's, it's encouraging, as I have said, that these are blessings. Like Jesus literally says, blessed are you in these ways. And so these are blessings. This is encouraging. This is grace. This is, hey, hey, I want you to know that in my kingdom, this is way it is. And you are like this, and this is good. This is encouraging, but it's also challenging, right? Because even though we are, if we are in Christ, he's forming these beatitudes in us. And yet it's challenging because a lot of us see the, the disconnect sometimes in our own hearts between where we, we know he's calling us to be and where we are. We may be somewhat merciful, but we want to be more merciful. We may be a little meek. We want to be a little more meek. And so it's, it's both a declaration of grace and yet at the same time, it's an exhortation to continue on in these blessings. And so we close out today with the final blessing and, and really one that I think will also be very challenging and also hopefully very encouraging for you. It's actually unique in that it's the last beatitude, but it's kind of a double blessing. And so as we launch into this, I was thinking through like uh, being a kid, I, I don't know about your background. I am 42. I was raised in a preacher's home. Uh, I was born in 1980. Um, so I was kind of coming of age in the 90s, um, and the reality of back then, I mean, it's still somewhat this way now, but definitely back then, like, I remember as a kid just thinking, like, it was really cool when famous people were Christians. I mean, I remember thinking, like, um, just uh, how cool it was when some, either like an artist at the, at the Academy Music Awards, or I mean, American Music Awards would, would, you know, think the big man upstairs. I'm like, it's not what I call him, but it's cool that you thanked him. Or like an athlete after a game would just give glory to God. I remember thinking like, it's so cool. And I think the reason why was because I wanted to be cool as a Christian. I mean, I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be Christian and I wanted them both to go together, right? And so anytime you saw somebody that culturally was pretty famous, pretty cool, and they loved Jesus, it was like, wow, that makes me feel cooler about myself. And I think you saw that even within the church in the 90s, especially, that there was this draw to being what they would call now seeker sensitive. That we wanted to be 
cool. We wanted to sing cool songs. We wanted to create cool environments. We wanted people to think like, well, the church isn't that backwards. It's actually kind of cool. And so we went out of our way to make environments that were more attractive. We tried to make sermons maybe a little bit shorter. We tried to make music a little more intriguing. I remember anybody in here do K-Life when you were in high school? I'm the only one. Okay. Andrea too. All right. K-Life is just a non-denominational youth event that that would be held in. We had one in Hot Springs, a chapter there. Um, And so basically it's a parachurch ministry. We'd meet on Thursday nights, just a bunch of high school students that went to different churches. We'd gather in this house, we'd sing, and we would listen to some Bible teaching. And I remember even then, um, if my memory serves me right, that we even, I remember singing like some Hootie and the Blowfish at K-Life. And it was like, only want to be with you, Jesus, right? You're like, you're trying to make it cool. Hold my hand, Lord, you know. It's just weird now, but you look back at that, it's like, what was driving that? It was just the idea that we want to be attractive to the world. And I remember even, not even that long ago, like that was then, but it's still there. A few years ago, I was driving to Dallas, down I-30, and there's a church on the side of I-30 with a sign that says, home of the 15-minute sermon, a sign you'll never see here. (laughs) But that's what, they had. And I remember thinking like, what? Like, that's what you're trying to draw people in with? This this idea like, hey, we're not going to keep you long. Don't worry about it. We want to make this as convenient for you as possible. The reality is this is still present. And though I do think it actually has waned a little bit, probably in part due to COVID, many in our vein of the church, the evangelical church, we have tried to be cool. We've tried to be accepted by the world. We've tried to be to to give something that glitters to attract an unbelieving world to us. And we may wrap this up in sparkling paper and call it relevance or call it mission or call it all things to all people. And sometimes that's true because in reality, we do need to be relevant to our culture, but only I think within the boundaries of the gospel. And we do need to be on mission but with the message of the gospel, and we should be all things to all people, as Paul said, but with the hope of the gospel to change their lives. Because the the ultimate aim for the gospel of Jesus Christ is to transform us, not our service or our environment to transform people. The ultimate attraction is not me, it's not our band, it's Jesus. And you might be thinking like, where are you going with this? Well, I believe because Jesus is at the heart of Christianity and he is the heart of the message of the gospel, the reality is that we are typically not going to be in as cool or as attractive to many in our world. And that's why I think we find Jesus's final beatitude probably a little bit off-putting to us. Here's what he says, Matthew 5.10. We've already heard it read. I'm going to read it again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus doubles down. It's two for one day in the kingdom of God. We get two blessings, a double blessing for persecution, almost as if he realizes that on this one, we need to hear it twice. Really? It's a blessing to be persecuted? 
You mean it's not blessed are those who are cool and attractive? Like we do everything we can to accrue comfort. We do everything we can to avoid pain. We do everything we can to stop rejection. That's natural. But just like Jesus says, blessed are the merciful and blessed are those who mourn because he really sees people in his kingdom who are merciful and who are mourning. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake because people in his kingdom are persecuted. We saw it then with the apostles throughout the book of Acts. They get thrown in jail, they get beaten, they get threatened, they get stoned, they get killed for preaching about Jesus. And we see it now. Followers of Jesus are persecuted all over the world. We as a church have been praying for our partners over in the Middle East who knew of a few people who were abducted in the Middle East, threatened, beat, and jailed. Now, praise God, they've been released. But persecution is real. It's real. And the most intense in persecution is maybe happening outside of America. But in America, we don't see, because in America, we don't see martyrdom here. We don't see kidnapping like elsewhere in the world. But Christians have become more and more marginalized, even in our own culture, probably for the most that it's ever happened in our country's history and persecution is only going to get worse in the coming years, I think. And I want to say very clearly, not because of, of some sort of like political party or election. That's not why this happened today. I'm not saying that. I just think it's a reality. It's not because of another party, political party. It's not because of another religion. The reality is when you look across history, this is how it often goes for Christians. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. He says, we will be persecuted. He says we will even be hated by the world. And most of the time, the world won't think we're cool. They won't think we're culturally interesting. We are a threat. We are a nuisance to their idea of progress, and we will be persecuted. And here is the deal, brothers and sisters. I don't think we're ready. I don't think we're ready. We're too busy whining about the influence we used to have. We're too busy fighting the world for more power instead of making peace. If churches today are talking about persecution, it's predominantly from an us versus them mindset, often political in nature, and it's mostly fear-mongering more than it actually is equipping God's people to endure persecution and to endure it well. We need to know how it is to be persecuted and to suffer well. I want to be ready when it comes. I want you to be ready when it comes. I want Journey Church to not be caught off guard when it comes. So let's take a step in that direction today by looking at persecution and looking at it by discussing three things. One, an expectation of persecution. The catalysts behind blessed persecution. And our response to blessed persecution. So an expectation of persecution. The catalysts that are behind blessed persecution. And then our response to blessed persecution. So starting just with an expectation of persecution. Expectations are paramount in the way that we actually engage reality. Now, I've got, uh, my oldest is 21, but when he was younger, he had a deal about like surprises. So like we would say, so, well, we'd say things like, hey, Noah, 
we got a surprise for you. And his response would always be something just like crazy, like you're taking me to the Cowboys game. And you're like, no, it's a cookie. You know, it's like not, not anywhere near that. You know, it, it, it makes it hard. And y'all know, like you've been there on Christmas morning, you're like fired up, you think you know what's in the gift and you open it up and that's not what you wanted. It's not even what you asked for. You're like, you had a Google Docs list, right? So we all know what it means to actually have an expectation that doesn't end up meeting reality. We see it even in sports, like those, those times that you're expected to win and you do win, the enjoyment is not quite as good because you're like, I was supposed to, you know, that whole like act like you've been here before thing. But when you're expected to win and you lose, the disappointment is greater. Like we understand that expectations and, and the way that they engage with reality makes a big difference in our lives. And sometimes it's things that are trivial, like surprises or gifts or sports. But sometimes it's things that are more serious. And in moments with unmet expectations, what they do is they end up creating disappointment at best or at worst, disorientation in life. And depending on the situation and the stake you have in the outcome, unmet expectations can knock you off kilter. It can create a sort of life vertigo. Think about marriage. I mean, I know probably most of you did not enter marriage that are married with any kind of expectations. But in case you did, um, how often in marriage or in just relationships in general do you have an expectation that goes unmet? How do you react? I remember not long after Jimmy and I got married, we, there was an expectation I had because there's only one way to fold towels. There's only one way to fold towels correctly and it's either in thirds or you're wrong. And I remember coming in and being like, why are you folding towels that way? <laughs> You know, in fourths, like that's just, that's going to take up a whole lot more space. It just doesn't make any sense, you know. And it's, a, it's funny because it's like that sip, silly little things, but you, you end up having all kinds of expectations in marriage. I mean, I don't want to knock on rom-coms because I actually like rom-coms. Um, and Nicholas Spark books, I'm not going to say that I like those, but I do like rom-coms. But one of the things about romantic comedies is that they create unrealistic expectations, Right? Like this idea of a fairy tale, this idea that like you're looking for the one. And the reality is marriage and relationships are hard work and it takes a lot. It takes two to make them work. You see, it's all right to desire a fairy tale, to desire this type of story that you see in a romantic comedy, but to expect it, that puts immense pressure on a relationship that's actually designed by God for serving one another, for sacrifice, and for perseverance. And not to mention rom-coms of the many dangers of pornography. One of them is what it does to your expectations. It's unrealistic. And when you have expectations that don't meet reality, it causes disappointment at best or disorientation at worst. But it's not just marriage. We can see it in our careers, right? We expect a promotion at work and somebody else gets it. It's disorienting. You see it in school, like you expect to do well on a presentation or a test and it's not what you thought and it's disorienting. 
And you can imagine, like, if we see it in all of these ways, you can definitely see it in the way that we relate to God. We expect God to give us a comfortable life, don't we? We expect him to bless us in the ways that we perceive blessings, don't we? When, when we have those moments in our life where things don't go the way we thought, how often do we react like, why God? As though he owed us something or as if he told us like, this will never happen to you. And then it does and we're like, what the heck? We have expectations of God. And what happens when we suffer? What happens when we're persecuted? Do you doubt his love? Do you doubt his goodness? Do you doubt his existence? You see, when reality doesn't meet expectations, we are disoriented. Life is hard enough to not increase its difficulty by creating expectations that are just not realistic expectations. And this sermon is not about suffering in general. This is about persecution. And some of the reason I worry that myself and all of us are not prepared for persecution is because I think we just don't expect it for whatever reason. So when it does come, we are caught off guard and our instincts are to be angry with the culture or the world that persecutes us and or to be upset with God for allowing it. But listen to Jesus' words later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. Here's what he says. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of, of wolves. Sending them out. See, sending them in the world. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. You see, we should expect persecution. It should not catch us off guard. This is not pessimism. It's realism because Jesus promises that persecution is going to come. But notice what else he promises in this text. If you go to the next verse, chapter, verse 19, chapter 10, here's what he says. When they deliver you over talking about to the governors and the kings, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You see, he promises not just that persecution will come, but he promises that he will be present with us in the persecution. The spirit of God to empower us in the midst of persecution but we should also not just expect persecution because Jesus promised it. We should expect persecution because Jesus was persecuted. Back in that same chapter, a little bit further down, it says this in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? You see, the king of the counter kingdom was persecuted. And as we follow him, as we take the name Christian, which just basically means little Christ, as we follow him as disciples in his counter kingdom, we should expect to experience what he experienced, persecution. 
And Jesus wasn't just persecuted by the kingdom of this world. He was killed by the kingdom of this world. And should we then expect a cushy life instead? Should we expect to be cool? For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been persecuted, mistreated, martyred. Why should we think that we would be so different? This is a hard truth. But having proper expectations around persecution is half the battle. But Jesus takes great care to specify the type of persecution that is blessed. You see, he doesn't say, he doesn't bless persecution in general. I think we often hear, blessed are those who are persecuted, and we just kind of stop there. Like we do this as Christians, when we do this as Christians, we often kind of fall into this like wrong assumptions about certain things, like we're persecuted and we just automatically assume that we're blessed. <laughs> and it's not normally the case. Daryl Johnson says it like this, Jesus is not blessing those who get persecuted for being obnoxious in their peacemaking. Jesus is not blessing those who get persecuted for being tactless or insensitive and bearing witness in the world. Jesus is not congratulating those who get persecuted for being dogmatically dogmatic or narrow-mindedly narrow-minded. Jesus is not congratulating the thrill-seeking confrontationalist. Anybody know some people on that list? Anybody on that list? What does Jesus say are the catalysts to the type of persecution that he blesses? Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first type of blessed persecution is persecution for righteousness' sake. Well, what does that mean? If you've been here through the series, you know this is not the first time the word righteousness has popped up in the Beatitudes. It was back in those, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And when we preached that sermon, I said that basically the Greek word here for righteousness means a state of him who, who, a state of him who is as he or she ought to be, the condition acceptable to God. So this part, righteousness means in, in one way that this relationship is in right standing. And then it also means integrity, value, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. So it means that the way that we go about our horizontal life with others and internally is right with God. That's what righteousness means. And then we said that righteousness in the scriptures then kind of carries three overarching themes, personal holiness and integrity. So like we should have a desire and an attribute, a quality of our life that is holy, like God is holy. There's integrity, has integrity, like what you see on the outside is what's going on on the inside. And then we said that when you have persons that have personal holiness and integrity that come together, God makes a people. This becomes a communal holiness and integrity, a, a people of God, not just a person of God. And that the people of God who are about holiness and integrity then go about a public wholeness of being out in the world. This is what we said righteousness was. And here Jesus is saying that when we do these things, when there's a personal holiness, when there's a communal holiness, when there's a public wholeness, there comes persecution. Why? That sounds like good things. Why is there persecution? Well, as I said last week, the Beatitudes are not like the Enneagram. 
They're not picking one and not the other. They're not, you're more this way and you're not that. They're not the way a lot of us view fruits of the Spirit, which Galatians actually says fruit of the Spirit. It's all one thing. It's pointing to one person. And Jesus is the hero of the Beatitudes and he's making his people more and more over their life like this. So it's a logical progression then to see like, what does it mean then to be persecuted for righteousness? Well, it means number one, I think that there's a spirit of righteousness internally for us because internally we are poor in spirit. Like you start to think about this last beatitude in light of all of the beatitudes. We're poor in spirit. We are dependent on God. Everybody, I said this the first week, every single soul is poor in spirit, but the ones who are blessed are the ones that realize it and come to Jesus. None of us have anything to offer God, but the ones that know that and go, I am here totally by grace and I need your grace in my life. I need you to make me right. That's an internal spirit of righteousness that we are given from God. And there's a mourning about us. That's again, internal, like we're broken over the sadness or broken over the, the stuff in our life that is broken, that's contrary to God. We're broken over what we see in the world that's contrary to God. And we begin to pray about the brokenness in us and in our world. We engage in this moment in spiritual warfare and we hunger and we thirst for righteousness. Like we have appetites to see personal holiness in our lives, not just like a wish, an appetite, something that drives us. And it drives us communally to be about his business and we're pure at heart. Like the best that we can, we are trying to pursue God with a fully sold out heart for him. You see, these, this is what I'm calling and others have called the spirit of righteousness. Why are we persecuted for righteousness? Because there's a spirit in the people of God and the kingdom of this world is not gonna play nice with this type of spirit. The kingdom of this world, the enemy does not elevate poor in spirit. He wants you to think you've got a lot of riches in your spirit. The enemy doesn't want you mourning over brokenness. Romans 1 says that, that the world rejoices over brokenness. They, they celebrate sin and rebellion. You see, there is odds here. The spirit of righteousness confronts the spirit of darkness in this world and warfare ensues and you gotta be ready. But we're not just persecuted because of a spirit of righteousness. It's not some invisible spirit only in the people of the counter kingdom that's creating a spiritual battle. We're actually persecuted in the physical world because the spirit then provokes us to action. Think about some of the other Beatitudes. Again, back to hunger and thirsting for righteousness. It's not just an internal holiness and integrity. It's an external public wholeness. When we go about the world and say, this is dark, this is unjust. We need to fix this. What can we do about this? This creates conflict with darkness. And we're meek, like we're gentle and lowly like our savior, but we use our power and strength in gentle ways for those who are powerless and have no way to help themselves. When we're merciful, we offer mercy to the outsider, to the outcast, to those in need, and to our enemies. And as much as it depends on us, we live at peace. We're peacemakers, making peace with one another and ultimately trying to help people make peace between themselves and God. You see, the deeds of righteousness confront the kingdom of this world in the physical realm. And Jesus says that the deeds of righteousness and the spirit of righteousness, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's coming. 
But Jesus says that there's another catalyst for persecution in verse 11. He says this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, it's interesting. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the way that the kingdom of this world, the way the enemy wants to provoke people against the king of truth is to speak falsehood about the king and about his people. And Jesus says, it's coming. And it's interesting because it's not that this is necessarily deserving of persecution. It's falsehoods, right? It's fabricated things. It's fabricated reasons. It's not, and, it's, and here's the other thing is it's not us. This is the first time in the Beatitudes that you see two things. He goes from some more generic, blessed are they or blessed are those, to blessed are you. And it's also the first time that he gets pulled into this on my account. On my account. How could we be persecuted on account of Jesus? It's easy. By the third thing, it's the speech of righteousness. We proclaim the gospel. You see, the gospel itself means good news and it's the hope of mankind, but it is offensive. Because the gospel tells a hard truth about the nature of mankind being away from God, being dark, being broken. Ephesians uses the term dead if you're not in Christ and that we desire to be our own God. The gospel may be good news, but it is hard news. And it's not just hard news, it's exclusive news, right? It's, there's an exclusive truth that we say that Jesus, the proclaiming of the gospel is that there's only one way for you to be reconciled to the Father, to your maker, to the way that you were designed to live and that's through Christ, no other way. No way that you can come up with on your own, no other God, no other religion. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no way to the Father except by me. That's offensive. And on top of that, he says, I have a kingdom, which means he's a king, which means you're not. There's a lordship to the gospel that we are turning away from us being our own king and serving King Jesus in joy. You see, the gospel, the speech of righteousness is gonna cause persecution. I mean, it's good news. It's a declaration that we can be reconciled by grace, that we can't earn it, that we may not feel like we are worthy because we're not worthy, but God loves us anyway. You understand like the, the height of love is not to say like if your spouse goes, why do you love me? And you can list off all these reasons, that might be great. But in the end, that almost kind of comes across like it's conditional. I love you because you're this. I love you because you're that. Well, what if I wasn't this or that? God says, I don't love you because of anything. I love you because I love you. It's not tied to you. It's tied to me because I made you and I love you. And while that's good news, it's offensive because we just naturally want to earn it. God reconciles us through the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's good news, but the kingdom of this world is threatened by the gospel. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says it like this, for the word of the cross, that's the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing. Maybe your translation says it's foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, 
to the kingdom of this world, they look at the gospel, they look at what Jesus has done on the cross that he died in this brutal, they're like, it's silly, it's foolish. You believe that has power? But to those who are being saved, we're like, yeah, we do. I've seen it. To those who are being saved is the power of God, but to the kingdom of this world, they're threatened by it. They're like, that, that's silly, that's nonsense, that's, no, we're not for that. But the spirit of righteousness in us and the deeds of righteousness by us, along with the speech of righteousness and proclaiming the gospel through us, we should expect persecution in this world. It's just the way it is. So the question is, what's our response gonna be? Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and blessed are those who are persecuted on account of him. And despite the difficulty of persecution, this is a statement of blessing. It's a statement of grace. We have to see that. Otherwise, our response will be much of what I think we do see right now in our country with, our, with Christians that are, that are persecuted. And it's this, it's a victim mentality. We fixate on how mistreated we are, how unfair the world is in which we live towards Christians, how all these other groups, if you were to tear them down, you would have a firing squad on your back, but you can tear down Christians all day long and nobody cares. And we resort to this kind of victim mentality. But Jesus, however, instructs us to have a different response than a victim mentality. He says this in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is our disposition in persecution. Joy and gladness. Now I would imagine over the course of this series that, and I've heard from many of you that this has been the case, and I know it's been the case for me, that many of us go home maybe after Sunday or maybe as you're prepping to lead your journey group, you're, you're looking at the text and you're just praying and you're like, God, make me more merciful. Would you make me more hungry? I'm gonna guess that most of us are not going home going, well, you made me more persecuted. Come on, bring it, Lord. And I don't think that that's wrong. I don't think we should be praying for persecution. I don't believe Jesus is saying that we should seek it out. I think he's basically saying it's coming whether you seek it or not. But he is saying this. He's saying in the midst of persecution, we are to maintain a joy and a gladness about us as we follow in his footsteps. See, the writer of Hebrews, I think I've said this before in the series, but the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says that upon Jesus, upon the cross, which is Jesus' ultimate act of persecution against him, it says he went to the cross for the joy set before him. That Jesus went to the cross with joy and gladness. See, as his disciples then, we approach persecution the same way. We take up our cross with joy because like the prophets before us and like our Savior King, we joyfully endure persecution. We don't enjoy it, but we joyfully, we have a disposition about us that is not cantankerous with the world, but instead is joyful that we are counted, as the apostles say in Acts 5, that we are kind of worthy to suffer the same way as our Savior. And Jesus says not only that, that there's a reward for those who experience blessed persecution. 
He says, the reward is the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's interesting that the Beatitudes start with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And at the end, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's bookended by the counter kingdom and a call that these are the type of people that I have in my kingdom. And we see foretastes of it now, speaking of Christmas, like the old man Parker in a Christmas story, right? He's trying to get that little nibble of turkey for it's fully ready. You know, you'll get worms, she says. You know, like he's, if you haven't seen the movie, there's 24 hours of it coming. But he, but he pulls that piece of turkey off, right? That's us in this world. Like we have a foretaste, we get a little bit of the kingdom of heaven because Jesus has already inaugurated it, but it will come fully and finally one day. And our reward is the kingdom of heaven. He says that we are ushered in by grace and that we maintain it by grace and that when we're persecuted, we can look forward to the kingdom of heaven. But ultimately, ultimately, I want you to see this too in verse 12. Notice in verse 12 where this reward is kept. Verse 10 says that for ours is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 12, notice where it's kept. He says, great is your reward in heaven. In heaven. There's two aspects I think you need to see that I need to see here, and that's this. That number one, our ultimate hope is outside of this reality. Our reward is in heaven. A lot of times we want the reward now. But Jesus says the reward's in heaven. There's gonna be days that are gonna be hard, but your reward is in heaven. It's not on this earth. It's not gonna be fully experienced on this side of eternity. Being persecuted is difficult. Our joy and gladness is not due to the present situation in isolation, but what the situation signifies that we belong to Jesus and that he is with us in our persecution and that one day in heaven, we will receive the reward. But notice also this, because our reward's in heaven, the location of the reward means it's untouchable. It's untouchable. Our reward is in heaven where the gates of hell don't stand a chance, where the schemes of the enemy are not just futile, they are not existent. When we suffer blessed persecution on earth, we don't have to worry about it being in vain. The reward is in heaven and it's secure. But there's one more response to blessed persecution that we need to address. I think it's kind of the elephant in the room, so to speak. And as we reach the end of our series in Beatitudes, it would be easy to see this blessing on persecution for righteousness and decide to kind of opt out of engaging in the world, right? Like we, we like the other seven blessings, but this one, it's like, can we, can we, can, if this was a buffet, like I'll take everything but dessert. Like I don't want the end. I don't want, I don't want the persecution. And so the way a lot of times we do that then is that we, we, we retract we don't want to engage the kingdom of this world. Jesus says persecution is coming for us. Jesus says persecution is coming as the disciples would be delivered up in the courts and flogged in places of worship. And it'd be easy for them. It'd be easy for us to be like, then I don't want to, I'm just going to kind of create my own little environment. I'm not going to engage the world. I don't want that. And here's what Jesus even says right before he, right before the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says this in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, his followers should experience what he experienced. Both those who hate him will hate his followers. Those who listen to him will listen to his followers. And that's what we're doing today. We're reading John, we're reading Matthew, people who are sitting in the room when he said this. We're listening to them. But here's where I wanna land this plane, both for the sermon and the series, is what he says next, and then finishing in Matthew 5, he says this, verse 21, but all these things they do to you on account of what? My name, why? Because they don't know him who sent me. The world will hate us, the world will persecute us on account of the name of Christ, why? Because they don't know him. God. They don't know him. So it would be natural for us to want to pull away from the world, be like, well, you don't know my God? Well, I don't want to know you. To protect, to hide, to seek comfort, and yet no one can read the other Beatitudes and see any way for Christ followers to engage the world other than to be within the world. So there's a dilemma and I think that's why Jesus immediately after the Beatitudes jumps into this statement, which has been our benediction for this series on purpose. Look at what he says in verse 13 of chapter five as we close. You are the salt of the earth. Hmm. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, sometimes the way Bibles are lined out we put little subheadings in there. And so you'll see like Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Just so you know, Matthew didn't write that part. And it'll be like Matthew 5, 3, the Beatitudes. Okay, he's not writing a blog with subtitles. These are editors that come in and put this in. And here's why I bring that up, is I think for me, just until I've really preached through this, what is interesting is that there's a break between the Beatitudes and salt and light. And what does it say? Salt and light. And a lot of times we look at that and we kind of disassociate what he says there with the Beatitudes. And yet it's quite clear that when he's preaching this sermon on the Mount, he's tying them together. He's tying them together. Prior to this series, I probably would have thought not much about it. Like I knew both, both uh, passages, but like didn't really tie the two together. But as you work through the Beatitudes and you see that they're pointing to the way people in the counter kingdom engage the world, and then you see the way the majority of the world engages with these people, they persecute followers of Jesus. Jesus reminds his audience that counter kingdom people are in the world and they're making a difference. They're salt and they're light. See, Jesus says his counter kingdom people are salt and light in the world. You know, in our day, salt is mostly used for flavor, 
But in Jesus' day, it was as much for flavor as it was preservation of meat. Jesus is saying then that his people are the salt of the earth. By living out the Beatitudes that Jesus is transforming his people into, we are a remnant of redeemed image bearers working as a preserving agent in the world. We're working against decay. How? By seeking righteousness, by offering mercy, by pursuing him with all our hearts. Salt preserves from within. This is the spirit of righteousness. But Christ followers are also called light. We're not to be a hidden light, but a light that shines for all to see. And when we do, some of our deeds of righteousness, some people will see them and they'll glorify our Father in heaven. But how can they do that? Because Jesus said in John 15, when they persecute you, it's they, don't, they don't know the Father. How can they glorify the Father if they don't know the Father? I mean, how, how can we do good deeds how will they know as we do these deeds who's responsible for our transformed lives? Will they think it's us? How will they know about our hope even though we're poor in spirit? How, how will the world know that we are comforted in our mourning? How will they know that we've received mercy? By the speech of righteousness, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus as we go about being salt and light, working against decay, shining light in dark places and suffering persecution all along the way. Because without the gospel, our, our spirit of righteousness and our deeds of righteousness are irrelevant. If the salt of the earth and if the light of the world, if the hero of the Beatitudes, Jesus is not made known by the preaching of the gospel. And instead of being angry with our world because of persecution, we, like our master Jesus, love sacrificially with joy and gladness, knowing that the counter kingdom of heaven belongs to us by grace and is secure in heaven forever. Brothers and sisters, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a declaration, but it's an exhortation. It's an expectation. It's a promise but it's a blessing that we can count on. Amen. So, you might be like, what do I do with that? Well, if you're here and you would say like that you don't follow Jesus, what you do with that is you hear the speech of righteousness, that Jesus is the way to fulfillment in this life, even in hard times, that he is your peace with God. 
that he will offer you mercy. If you are not a follower of Jesus, it's to hear the gospel and to respond in faith. To enter in, maybe, the counter kingdom of God. It's available for you. You see the, the Beatitudes, if you've been here this whole time, you see the Beatitudes, these are not like rock stars. It's not like, man, if you're awesome, you can be in my kingdom. This isn't even JV, right? This is like, you know, the practice squad. And he's like, come on, it's for you. If you're here today and you follow Jesus, if you think about just kind of the overarching series, I would say number one, just be encouraged. Because if you are in Christ, he's saying you are blessed in all these ways. He's gonna make you more merciful. He's gonna work that into you as you see him giving you mercy and it'll make you a merciful person. So if you think about through the Beatitudes, just be encouraged and be challenged. Because while we are definitely being worked, those things are being worked into us, we all have room to grow. Be encouraged, be challenged and follow Jesus in persecution, in difficulty, follow Jesus in his heart towards the lost instead of being angry, our culture, da-da-da. No, just loving people. Wherever you find yourself in the day, ask the Spirit to sort through your heart and then let's sing. There'll be people down front to pray with you if that's something you wanna do, but let's just praise God for his goodness to us. Our Father, we are in this room uh, hearing a hard truth from you. And as I'm sitting here thinking about it, even right now, I think about that time where you speak some hard truths to your disciples and to others and people left, the crowds kind of left. And you looked at the disciples and said, are you gonna leave too? Peter said, where would we go? For you have the words of life. Father, would you help us to see you as the words of life? Because it's hard. And I feel like it's coming the day where it might be even harder. We pray that that's not the case. We pray that we would see revival in our country. We'd see people that come to know you, that, that we would have hearts, revival in our own hearts, where we would be so no longer just judgmental towards the world or angry towards the world, but that rather we would have a heart softened by the gospel. But if a day comes where we will be persecuted even worse in our country, God, would you give us, would you equip us beginning now to endure it well? for the glory of your name that they may see our deeds and not glorify us. Glorify the one who transformed us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray, amen.